Welcome to CNEM Sessions. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for chapel messages, interviews, and more. At CNTM Christian Schools, we partner with parents to provide Christ-centered pre-K through 12th grade education in the heart of the Willamette Valley, Oregon. To learn more about CNTM, visit cntmchristian.org. Today's session is from October 13th, Junior High and High School Chapel, titled Imposters by Pastor Seth Trimmer from Grace City Church, Corvallis. Uh, how many of you guys ever heard of Lance Armstrong? Lance Armstrong, anybody? Yeah, I heard of those. Uh, you guys are probably a little bit too young. Anyone actually own a Livestrong bracelet? Anyone actually got one of those? Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Lance Armstrong, for those of you that don't know him, was a famous American cyclist. I'm sure many of you are deeply invested into the world of American professional cycling. Uh, but Amer- uh, Lance Armstrong was a very big deal. He was a very big deal because Americans are not good bike riders. I don't know if you know this or not. We are not great. On the world scene, we are just absolutely just a shameful like, presentation of what the power of a person on two wheels can produce. Uh, but Lance Armstrong was arguably like the greatest cyclist in all of world history. And he won the most famous of all the bike races in the world, the Tour de France, seven years Seven years, this unprecedented level of victory. He was the pride of America. He raised hundreds of millions of dollars for cancer because he himself was a cancer survivor, hence the whole Live Strong yellow bracelets that everybody rocked. He was famous, he was popular, he was beloved, he was a national hero, he was a national icon. Everybody was down with Lance Armstrong. There had only been one other American uh, that had ever won the Tour de France before. Before that, pretty much the French just clean house. All the internationals clean house. They care about cycling and soccer, and we care about obviously other things here. Lance Armstrong, until, until the day it was discovered that Lance Armstrong is a cheater. He was doping, which apparently is a very common thing in the bicycling sport, and so he was taking all kinds of drugs and medication, and also he would take out blood before a race, and then during a race would re-inject it back in, which would give him an extra amount of red blood cells to give him extra endurance. He was cheating, he was a cheater, you guys. All seven, all seven of his Tour de France championships were taken from him. And now, if you look on Wikipedia, you'll see that there's only one American winner of the Tour de France, Greg LeMond, from back in the 80s, and they don't even mention Lance Armstrong anymore. He went from national hero to all the way at the bottom. He had a famous interview with Oprah Winfrey where she is just like going to town on him, essentially like, how could you? How could you do something so deceptive? How could you lie? How could you present yourself as something so clearly that you weren't? How could you do this? And it was really embarrassing to watch. Now, to his credit, everybody in cycling uh, does drugs. Everybody dopes. So it turns out that our, like, doped-up cyclists beat everyone else's doped-up cyclists. So the terms are actually much more fair than you can imagine. Uh, However, he was completely stripped of all the honor that he'd won. Why? Because no one likes an imposter. Failures we can tolerate. In fact, how many of you uh, can just imagine, there's so many Americans that have lost a Tour de France, and Americans don't care about them. If you were to meet them on the street, you say, oh, that's really interesting. You raced in the Tour de France. That's really awesome. 
You've got the participant trophy to prove it. Congratulations. But cheaters are different. People that pretend to be something that they are not exist in a special class of human being that gets a significant level of scorn. And here's the deal. This starts at an early age. This happens even in middle school, this happens in high school, all the way through adulthood. That failure is tolerable, but being an imposter is nearly unforgivable by society. Here's the problem. We're all doing it. One of the incredible things that I find about the Bible is how raw and honest it is. Like any time God writes a book about people, <laughs> like you know what I mean? There's going to be details in that book about the people that they themselves may not want to have others to know. You know what I mean? And there's all kinds of characters in the Bible that presented themselves as something that they were not actually. And this is actually a really big problem in the Bible. What's amazing to me about God is how he's able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks and how to do something really authentic in the world utilizing imposters that human beings often pretend to be. One of those famous characters is a guy by the name of Jacob. And Jacob was probably the most epic of all imposters in the Bible because he literally pretended to be someone that he wasn't. In order to steal his brother's birthright and his blessing, he pretended to be his brother. When his father's eyesight was getting bad, he dressed up in like hairy clothing because his brother apparently had a lot of hair. Uh, again, details of the Bible, so interesting. Like, do we know what his eye color was? No. How handsome he was? No. How tall he was? No. His IQ score? No. Like, but we know that he's a hairy guy. Isn't that going to be interesting? How, like, how many of you in heaven are just really interested to know what kind of details God's going to give about you? Like, like, side note. Hairy guy, and Jacob puts on this hairy outfit to deceive his father to receive the blessing that his brother actually deserved. He pretends to be someone else. Later on in Jacob's life, he has this powerful encounter with God, not, not knowing it at the time, wrestling with God, again, trying to take God's blessing on his own terms, literally wrestling it away from him. And God has this moment like, who are you? Jacob, you've been pretending to be someone else your entire life. And what God does for Jacob is gives him a new name. And Jacob isn't necessarily a redemptive character. I don't uh, know about your Bible proclivities, but you can't read any story of Jacob and come away with a warm feeling of like, yeah, that's a hero I'd like to be like someday. He's a cheater that ends up getting cheated and just does not live a very redemptive arc of a life in any meaningful way. And yet, God graciously takes that imposter and works through him to redeem all of history. You fast forward a little bit, and there's another guy named Peter. Now, Peter's probably one of my favorite imposters. Peter believes that he's got the goods. Peter's the loudest voice among all the disciples. He's the guy that you read about that's always putting his foot in his mouth. Now, there's a practical reason for that. He was the oldest of all the disciples, who so was kind of like their spokesperson, you know what I mean? So whether he wanted to or not, if Jesus asks a question, Peter's the guy that's got to, like, vocalize the answer first, you know, in the whole sort of pecking order of the deal, you know what I mean? But Peter's the guy that believes he's a dog. He's ride or die. He's with Jesus no matter what. And at the final hours of Jesus' life, he's convinced that no matter what happens to Jesus, he's going to stay by his side until Jesus says, oh, Peter. It's 
not how this is gonna go. But when you do abandon me, don't worry, that won't be the end of your story. And one of the incredible moments in Peter's life comes out of John 18, is when Jesus is being arrested. And when Jesus is being arrested, Peter, the imposter, who believes he's a ride or die, he's a warrior, he's gonna come on behalf of Jesus and stand behind him no matter what. Jesus comes to be arrested. And then Simon Peter, verse 10, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. And Jesus commanded Peter, what are you doing? That's not what he actually said. <laughs> Put your sword away, you numbskull. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Have you not been paying attention this whole time for why I'm here? I'm here to die. I'm here to be crucified. This is all part of the plan. And Peter steps up with a sword to try to fight and start a war, chopping off this servant's ear. So let's talk about for that for, for a brief moment, about what imposter syndrome does, what it looks like, and then I wanna unpack, as we close, what it actually looks like to be freed from being an imposter to actually living an authentic identity in Christ. What a freeing thing it would be to know who you are and to not have to pretend to be anyone else. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? If I could go back to my teenage years, could somehow receive that gift a little earlier, that would be incredible. Peter's imposter syndrome started because he was trying to convince himself and others that he was more than he really was, that he had more courage than he really did, he was more brave than he really was, he was more faithful, more loyal than he actually was. But clearly Peter was filled with all kinds of consternation. Peter had all kinds of anxiety and doubt. Peter had all kinds of like, motivations that were not about Jesus, that were ultimately about himself. And when Peter comes into these final moments of Jesus' life, the two major scenes that you see about Peter is number one, when Jesus is praying, what is Peter doing? Anybody? He's sleeping. The dude that's ride or die, that's loyal, that will stand with Jesus no matter what, is actually falling asleep. And then once the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, the very thing like intended by the plan of God, what does Peter do? He goes from slumber to taking up a sword. Both of which are dramatic departures from exactly what he's supposed to be doing, which is praying and relationally supporting Jesus. What imposters do is they just fluctuate between falling asleep and taking up a sword under-functioning and over-functioning, doing the most and doing nothing, procrastinating and pulling all-nighters, acting like they have it all together, falling apart in a puddle of emotional mess. Because one of the things that Peter never came to terms with is that he was not who he pretended to be. And he never let himself come to terms with that Jesus saw the real him. But what's amazing about Peter's life story is that's not where it ended. Being an imposter is not where things ended for Peter. Trying to pretend that he was a better Christian than he really was, or more spiritual than he really was, or more faithful or devoted than he really was, is not where his story ended. 
Peter's imposter story ended on the shores of the Sea of Galilee back when he was fishing, when Jesus, after his resurrection, approached him and asked him three questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Which I find to be an interesting question. Peter, do you love me? Now, Jesus has got a lot of work to do in Peter. There's a lot of things he's got to get, like, help Peter get together and help him figure out. There's a lot of things that Peter's going to have to overcome, a lot of internal junk that he's going to have to deal with. But Jesus' question to restore Peter back into relationship with himself, into his identity and his purpose and his calling, is really one question repeated three times and negate the three times that he had denied Jesus, do you love me? And there's something I think that's very important to think about, and you're going to spend the rest of your lives thinking about, that who you really are is not something that exists isolated and independent from everyone else. Here's, here's what I mean by that. People love to talk about their identities these days. They love it. We are fascinated with it. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard the sentence, I identify as, I would be very wealthy. Extremely wealthy. Me and Elon would be hanging out right now if I had a dollar for every time I had heard the phrase come out of someone's mouth, I identify as an attack helicopter, a green alligator, like a cat. I identify as a five on the Enneagram, as a six on the Enneagram. Oh, I am definitely a Myers-Briggs LMFAO. Like, I don't know. Like, but, like, people love to talk about who they are and their identity and who they present themselves to the world. We're all in this personal brand campaign to figure out, like, how we dress and how we look and which filters we use on social media, which hashtags we get known as, all about trying to, like, present ourselves to the world. But here's the reality. Here's why this is such a meaningless, like, a book of Ecclesiastes-level chase. It's like, you don't exist as some isolated, independent identity. As much as the Bible has to say about who you are, it has nothing to say about who you are separated and independent from everything else. Every time the Bible used language to give you an impression of who you are, it's giving you the identity of who you are in Christ. Meaning that our, our identities are relationally formed, not independently defined. I don't exist as an introvert. I exist as someone who is relationally connected to God and others in the type of way that I find more value and meaning in a few relationships that go deep than a lot of relationships that maybe stay a little bit more shallow. Are you tracking what I'm saying here? What I'm saying is when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He's not just restoring his relationship with Peter. He's also establishing Peter's own identity. Because there's one thing that imposters never do, and that's actually love Jesus. Imposters are continually trying to impress people, maybe even impress God. But those who know who they actually are don't have anyone to impress. And when you love something more than yourself, and when you love Jesus more than yourself, you don't have to worry about all the details and ins and outs of your personality and where you fit on every psychological test or online profile for which character in The Lion King you like most resemble. 
The only people who are truly going to be independently defined as isolated individuals are going to be those in hell. Hell, by definition, is isolation and independence from all love and relationship. But who you truly are and were made to be is lovers of God. You were made by a being of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a complete, perfect union of uninterrupted love from all the beginning. And you were made in that love, by that love, for that love, that you would receive that love and return that love back, that you yourself would be a part of that amazing relationship. And it's from and through that relationship that you live and move and have your being. In other words, who you are is about who you love. And the most important parts about who you are is about how you love, who you're in relationship with, and the context of how well you are giving and receiving love from them. Now, this is why Jesus comes to the most, like, one of the most infamous imposters. He says, do you love me? Implying, like, Peter, you've had a hard time loving yourself more than me, trying to be impressive rather than become a blessing. You spend so much time trying to prove who you are. But do you love me? One of my uh, good friends has a saying that anyone who has anything to prove will never be free to serve. And I would just substitute the word love. If you're trying to prove yourself or impress anyone or make yourself somehow like seen in a way that you prefer to be seen, here's the thing you're not thinking about, anyone else but yourself. And so Jesus comes along and rescues us from this prison of internal idolatrous identity and sets us free into a loving relationship where now I get to be son or daughter, servant, missionary, I get to be redeemed, chosen, loved, beloved, holy, and all these things are about who I am in relationship with Christ because the love of God has been freely poured out into my heart through the Holy Spirit, and that first love has evoked my response to love him back, and it's this love relationship that I have with God that is now giving definition to who I am. You are and will become what you love. The older you get, you'll see it. Tell me what you love, that's fine. I'll see what you love eventually. I'll see what you care about. I'll see about how you spend your time. I'll see the kinds of things that you do that you just let time run away from you. I see the kinds of things you'll be early to. I'll see the kinds of things you show up late to. I'll watch how you spend your money. I'll watch watch which type of people you care about. I'll watch the people that you veer to because you think they might add value to you and the people that you avoid because you think that they might diminish you. I'll see what you love by how you live. And who you love will shape the kind of person you ultimately become. Which is why Jesus' question wasn't just for Peter. It's for us. Constantly. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Well, let me be honest with you. I love me a lot too. I love to be impressive. As much as I've experienced the joy of blessing others, sometimes I love impressing others more. 
Sometimes I love me and people knowing me based on how I want them to see me versus them actually seeing who I really am. But here's why Jesus just does not capitulate to imposter syndrome. Because God, who is perfect love, cannot love anything that is not real. Does Jesus love you? Well, that's a complicated question. Do you know why? The real you, yes, he does. The imposter you, that you might be convinced that you are or try to convince the world that you are, no, he does not. Why? Because that doesn't exist. It's not real. He knows the real you. He knows the real Seth. Uh, there's the Seth that is standing before you right now. I have a microphone and a Bible, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself, talking about Jesus, telling you true things. That's fun. But there's another Seth that some days wakes up, and the last thing I want to do is open my Bible. And there's some days where Seth is going to sleep at night, and the last thought going through my head is, am I absolutely sure that Jesus is the Son of God? Man, I trust Jesus. Sometimes I really don't trust him. I'm still waiting for the day when somehow the person I pretend to be can really die, and the person that Jesus truly knows of me can come to life more and more. And I know that that journey is one where I choose every day to receive the love of God and to love him back. And when I receive God's love, it's a vulnerable thing to let God love me for who I actually am, all the broken parts. One of the things the Bible commands us to do is to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to give like our entire whole self to God, to Jesus. But do you realize what that means? That doesn't mean just the best parts of you. That doesn't mean like the 10% of you that's kind of spiritually inclined. That means all of you. That means giving him your faith and your doubt. That means giving him your love and your selfishness. That means giving him your joy and your despair. That means giving him your trust and your anxiety. When you worship Jesus, it means giving him everything. Have you ever read a psalm ever in your life? Apparently, the language of worship to God involves giving Jesus all of us, meaning giving Jesus all the real parts of us, so that in loving Jesus, we can actually be made new from the inside out, not pretending the ugly parts of us don't exist, but knowing that Jesus sees the ugliest parts of you and loves you. My friends, there is nothing more powerful you will ever experience in this world than looking bad in the face of love. That will change you. When the darkest parts that you'll discover in your life as you get older have already been seen and known by God, and someday you'll start tuning into them. And in those darkest places, you've already been seen, you've already been known, you've already been loved. And you don't have to pretend to be someone else in order to receive anything more from God. In fact, that's a fool's errand that Jesus resists. One of the big hang-ups with uh, being imposters that everyone suffers from, Christians, non-Christians, everyone does it. And there's a very like, basic reason for it. The reason for it is, is that you are the only person that you know from the inside. 
everybody else you know from the outside. You and God are the only two people that knows you from the inside. And God's the only one that actually knows the real you and all of you and the truth about you. We have a very skewed and distorted like self-image of who we actually think that we are. And so you take all that you think and feel internally, and you judge yourself by what you see in everyone else externally. Here's the problem. Everybody's an imposter. So what you see on the outside of most people never is going to correlate to how you feel light on the inside because what you're seeing on the outside of other people is not necessarily their most authentic thoughts and emotions and expressions. And so one of the big issues that we're even fighting in now and today, like in terms of mental health, emotional health, anxiety, depression, loneliness, and so on and so forth, which I feel all the time, but one of the reasons why it has gotten so exacerbated is because we think everybody else around us isn't experiencing the same thing as us. There's a certain level of anxiety that's just normal human experience in a broken world. There's a certain level of depression that is a little bit appropriate. If you don't look at the world and see all the pain and brokenness of it, and from that derive a small amount of sadness, you're a psychopath. Depression isn't always like an inappropriate thing. But sometimes we're feeling sad or lonely or isolated and disconnected, an appropriate emotional response. But then we look at others and they're smiling and seeming like they're doing way better than us. We don't see their struggle. We just feel ours. And so we have a decision to make. Are we going to play the imposter game along with everybody else? Or are we going to take the risk of actually being authentic? And the beautiful thing that time and time again always happens in Christians' community when they are brave enough to actually be real and bold and authentic. It's just comical. One of the things I love about working with young people, I work with tons of college students, it's just hilarious uh, because there's nothing new under the sun. And guess what? Every college student is watching porn. And they're all feeling really guilty about it and ashamed of it. And there's always a moment. There's always a moment. Like you've been in a small group, you've been discipling them, you've got a few guys around, there's always a moment where you've been talking about Jesus, maybe some of them gotten saved, you've like shared the gospel with them, it's all going great, you've got about six guys, and there's always a moment, and I wait for it, it's hilarious, when the first guy is going to come and confess, when the first guy is going to say what he's actually dealing with, what he's actually doing when he's not in Bible study, or when he's not in church, just wait for it. And I just sit there as everyone else talks about all the other things that God's doing in their life or like the midterms that they're praying for, like all these things, like, yeah, super important. I'm really happy about that. Uh, and I'm just waiting for the moment when someone gets real. And usually it's that moment you see the group is just kind of going along and everyone's just kind of smiling, happy, like, happy to be there. It's all getting along. You're at the coffee shop. You're in the living room. You're wherever you are. And then there's that moment you can see one guy's just kind of nervously tapping his foot. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, know what I mean? you can tell he's like, like a little bit of sweat's trickling down the brow. You know what I mean? You can tell something's on his mind. Something's really not okay. How you doing? Uh, I'm okay. And you just tell they're a little bit nervous. And you're getting through it. And it's, everything's real surfacey. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's just a very heady sort of conversation. It's not really going anywhere. And then all of a sudden he just breaks it. I can't take it anymore. Pastor Seth, I just got to say, I, lo I looked at porn last week. Oh, really? And you could, and I just, I'm just so ashamed. I just, I, I feel terrible about it. Like, I just don't know how to stop. I'm just, I'm... and then I just wait. And I look around the room, and I watch every head go. And you just give it a minute. Pastor Seth, me too. 
Pastor Seth, yeah, me too. Pastor Seth, me too. And you watch the imposters die and the truth come to life. And all of a sudden, the grace of God can show up because the real them is present. And then we have an amazing discussion about why that's even attractive or appealing and what it means to love God and how the love of God could replace this counterfeit love. And we pray for each other and we encourage each other and we know and fully expect that one small group isn't gonna make us perfect. But we make a commitment to each other. We're not gonna be imposters. We're gonna be real. And if that's a broken version, well, we bring the broken version. If it's a sad version, well, we're gonna bring the sad version. But Jesus only knows and indeed only loves the real you. The real you. My friends, can I tell you, the most beautiful gift Jesus gives to us, the identity that we have in Christ is incredible. But for those of you that feel any pressure, because you're trying to live up to an external performance that isn't matching your internal experience, welcome to the club. We are all there. We're all exactly there. We're all a mixture of happiness and depression, anxiety and faith. We're all a mixture of doubt and trust, love and selfishness. We're all this complicated mixture. But the joy of the gospel says that it's not based on you that you're saved, but Jesus' perfection and what he's done for you, and that you can trust in him, that he sees the real you, and he's not done with you yet. So you don't have to hide and you don't have to cover up. And especially and in particularly when you're with the people that God has called you to walk with and trust, you can be vulnerable and open and allow the internal reality of your life to be seen on the outside so that other people can feel the burden relieved of having to be an imposter in front of you. And when God's people do not live as imposters, but as authentic, real human beings filled with struggle and mixtures of doubts and everything, when we live as authentic human beings in Christ, receiving all the love and the promises of who God says we are and will one day fully be, we win. We win. It's a better life. We pray that you were encouraged by today's message. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to our podcast and stay up to date with SC. And for more information about us, please visit cnemchristian.org.